Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Henry Olson for a conversation in our postmodern conservative series. The thing on our minds today is skyrocketing turnout in American elections. This is not much talked about, but you, Henry, had a wonderful column about this and brought to my attention other people who are writing about it. And I thought, since this is the biggest sign of increased interest at a popular level in what the hell is happening in our politics, we should talk about it for our podcast. I'm delighted to uh, be back with you today. Glad to have you here. And let's start with explaining to the audience how much turnout is increasing, why we think it will keep increasing after 2018 to 2020, and what this bodes for the election. Well, the turnout in the 2018 midterms was the highest in decades. By some measures, it was the highest since World War One. And what that means is that people are so embroiled in these controversies that President Trump is both a cause and an effect of that they will do things they normally don't do, which is to say vote when the president's not on the ballot. Now, there are different measures to estimate the relationship between turnout in a midterm and turnout in a presidential record, and all of them point to massively record turnout in 2020 in the range of 150 to even as many as 175 million votes, which would be by far the largest number of votes cast in an American race. And I'm concerned that our local election authorities are not prepared for this. They'll have to print 30% or 40% more ballots than they've ever printed before. And there doesn't seem to be a sense of emergency. Yes, that's a very good point. It's dangerous in a way by itself to get people so riled up that politics gets angrier and angrier and angrier. But to add to that a kind of institutional incompetence that makes democracy unworkable in the very moment when the people are trying to vote would be indeed a very bad step. Yeah. Imagine in such a race where people are so angry. Imagine if you have record turnout and then people can't vote because the lines are too long. And if they stay too long, they can't get to work because we don't vote on a weekend or on a holiday like many countries do. That alone could cause people to say that the election was invalid, that one side or another would have won, quote unquote, if there hadn't have been this incompetence. That sort of confusion over a close election could really hurt the legitimacy of whoever is the winner. Yes, indeed. And so this is the first and in a way the most urgent concern. There needs to be more talking about this matter precisely because since everything else is contentious, we had at least better make sure that people can say fair and square. That's how the election went. Exactly. Because the temptation of parties to deny the legitimacy of an election they lose is only increasing. And indeed, this seems to dominate the issues of our politics. American politics since 2016 has been one long attempt by more or less everybody, not Donald Trump, to get Donald Trump out of office, hopefully by impeachment. And on the other hand, an attempt by Donald Trump and some of his supporters to establish a new coalition and in a way to attack the administrative state or the legitimacy of many institutions from national security to the parties, etc. And the media, of course, fake news so that it seems like we are heading for very serious change through partisan politics in presidential elections. And if we cannot even agree that the elections themselves are free and fair, then it would be a very, very bad thing to then try to arbitrate which of the two competing coalitions should really speak for the majority and for the American people in future. Exactly. 
Imagine if it comes down to a couple thousand votes in Wisconsin, and people say they couldn't vote in Wisconsin because of long lines in some of the bigger, more liberal cities. Democrats will not only decry the unfairness of the Electoral College, they'll decry vote fraud, or they'll argue that Republicans intentionally underinvested in election technology or election expending so that Democrats couldn't vote. And they could very well deny the legitimacy of a victory in that case. And that would make our politics that have been very fractious over the last few years look like a children's party. Indeed. And so it's very important at a deeper level to try to clarify some of the problems we're dealing with. Yes, this is an age of angry politics that is just not going to get less angry. We have to square with that. But not all anger is the same. Anger that you're not winning is one thing. Anger that you have been cheated, that people aren't playing by the rules, is quite another thing. People can wait in their anger at losing for the next election and try again. But if they get the sense that they are being cheated, then maybe they shouldn't be waiting or maybe waiting is fruitless. So these are two very different kinds of anger. And then in relation to political change, it may be anger that politicians are doing something and the electorate doesn't want that thing, wherever the majority will assemble. But it could be anger that the politicians aren't doing anything and the people want certain changes to be made. So there again, anger at what's happening could go in these two different directions. And a third element of the discussion here has to do with the relationship between democracy and institutions. Indeed, our institutions and our technology are themselves under partisan attack. Is America a nation of the Electoral College? Well, what if that turns out to be unpopular enough for Democrats that they will want to destroy it or undermine it in some way? Indeed, there has been talk recently of trying to somehow revive this idea of national popular vote A number of states or legislatures have already pledged to that, and that would be a big constitutional push. That would be one change that could be sought on a partisan line because of this political anger. And then aside from institutions like the Electoral College, there are indeed issues of technology and organization and logistics and how at every state level things are organized for elections. And you don't know how this is going to turn out, which is why it's so worrisome and we should be prepared. Because just like 2016 was a political shock because it was such a rare thing to win the Electoral College but not the popular vote, we're also reminded, of course, of the election of 2000, when again you had a problem with the distinction between the Electoral vote and the National Popular vote. And again, it turned out that you could allege technological and perhaps institutional malfeasance and misfeasance in this one place or in a few places in Florida that... Well, that's part of federalism. You can't control every precinct in the country, but you cannot let the energy and the anger of an election hinge on that sort of thing that immediately becomes litigious, conspiratorial, hyper-partisan, and broadcast all over the media. No, that's exactly right. And compounded by the fact that unlike in virtually any other country, the electoral system here is incredibly devolved. There is no national election authority. There is not even a state election authority. The states can set rules, but the actual conduct of the election is handled on the ground by cities and counties. 
And these places differ wildly in their administrative competence. In many of the places where some of the problems happen, such as the Palm Beach County butterfly ballot that you obliquely referred to, are controlled by Democrats. So in Florida, you had the case where arguably it was the incompetence of a local Democratic Party elected election official that cost her party's candidate the presidency. But these subtleties are often lost in the national media and a whole lot of intolerance towards the fact that if you localize things, you're likely to not have it as professional as if you nationalized it and could easily become a source of demagoguery no matter who's as at fault. Indeed. This is the America we live in. Our system depends on a lot of localism, on a lot of federalism, on a lot of public spiritedness, really, which could just turn into really ugly spiritedness and not at all public. And so we have to deal with these matters in advance precisely because, as you said, we have very local ways of dealing with the problems, but the problems themselves have a nasty habit of becoming national scandals overnight. And then nobody's going to say, well, it's our own damn fault. They're just going to run with the crazy stuff. So in a way, the election will be a test also of this specifically American idea that the citizens can largely arrange elections, even for the most important things in world politics, on a strangely localized, decentralized, devolved basis, because they have the habits, they have the past, they have the attachment. That is to say, they're not only public-spirited, but reasonably competent. Not perfect, but reasonably competent. And so this renewal of political interest, vast increases in turnout that do not seem to abate, and the continuation of divided government, of shifts and waves and rolling waves in elections that show a deeply dissatisfied electorate looking for some new majority settlement that can lead us to tranquility again, Well, we have to understand that all of these things are being tested, both our ability to form new majority coalitions and our ability to administer elections as Americans the way we have done in a decentralized way. No, that's absolutely right. Increasingly, we see that the idea of localism, the idea of devolution is coming under attack. And if this election is not handled extremely competently, we could see those attacks redoubled because already the Democratic Party views the federalist and localist arrangements as something that either harms them or impedes them. And if they lose the presidency again because of it, you can only imagine what they will want to do to the institutions that they view are unjustly keeping them from power. Indeed. And so we should take an even broader view now of the relationship between the partisan character of our electoral contests and the structure of government. In the four years it'll be of the Trump administration, Republicans have made sure that they will be controlling the federal courts for a long time. That partly has to do with an enthusiastic and very competent running of the Senate by Majority Leader McConnell, who confirmed more judges, justices, etc. in three years than Obama had done in eight. That shows a new attitude for Republicans, since the courts were said to be controlled primarily by liberals before. And indeed, even when there were majority Republican appointees, the marquee issues in jurisprudence for conservatism were always coming up losses, such as, of course, Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood in the case of abortion. 
But now this seems to be changing and this will change the political contest. If liberals, and if Democrats, if progressives no longer feel they can rely on the courts to deliver decisions like Obergefell and constitutionalize rather than politicize in an electoral sense the issue of homosexual marriage, then they're going to have to do other things that are going to be just way more partisan and way more angry activist. It'll be party organization and scandal that carries the day. And so that leaves us with the elected branches. Now we are talking about the presidency in the case of 2020, but also the Congress. Because of our political demography, Republicans stand a good chance to control the Senate for a generation. They're just spread out in many states that don't have a lot of population, whereas Democrats concentrate on major cities and on a few states, the most important of which of course is the biggest and richest, California. So the partisan divide will force a fight within and among the institutions of the federal government and that fight will be gradually focused, purified as it were, to a conflict over two understandings of democracy. Democrats can win the House just as easily as Republicans can win the Senate and the presidency is of course more contested. But this will mean, as you suggested, that Republicans have to focus very much on making federalism work and getting democracy to feel more like self-reliance and self-government and decentralization so that they can defend this structure of the government and this understanding of how politics works. Whereas Democrats are looking for victory in a combination of massive new centralization, including constitutional changes in the direction of national popular voting. And on the other hand, massive populations that vote their way as in California. We are going through a period of ferment that is extending down to the very roots of our federalist and constitutional system. And it's difficult to see how it's going to turn out. But whatever it turns out is it's going to either result in significant change and dislocation to a large part of Americans who feel that their institutions have changed beyond their understanding, or it's going to be something that is going to alienate those who want change and feel increasingly frustrated at the inability to achieve it. Ultimately, a political entity, whether it's a city or a country or a multinational state, needs to agree on something and needs to have a large supermajority who are content with the arrangement. Increasingly, we do not have that in this country. And when you do not have that, you find that action is difficult and that action that takes place is viciously contested. Yes, indeed. We not only have conflicts, but we have even more confusion by our conflicts. Whereas the whole point of a political organization of conflicts is you at least get clarity first and then you can go for consensus. Obviously, we can only do that right now in a very querulous, in a very troubled and troubling way since we do not know how things are going to turn out. But at least we can look, since we're looking forward to 2020, at the elections of 2016 and 2018. We have increased turnout as we have to keep repeating, as we have to get it into our collective discourse. Who is voting who wasn't voting before? Why are the numbers swelling up so much and we expect that they will swell up much beyond 2018 and 2020? Voting is going up across the board. It's not one group. But the group that you can say is increasing most dramatically are the young that in virtually any democracy that doesn't have mandatory voting, the young vote much less than the old. And the gap in 2018 continued, but it was much smaller than it had been in the past. 
but it's going up among all groups because this is a crisis or a contest that is exciting and enraging and mobilizing all groups. Yes, there is indeed this national level movement is just happening everywhere that suggests it is not going to go away anytime soon. It will take some kind of new consensus for people to quiet down and mind other things than political elections in such numbers. Of course, we will get to learn in the process what kind of democracy should we be looking forward to? Should we be wanting much more voter participation across the board? Should we be wanting much more voter participation in this specific case among 18 to 30 year olds? We'll see how it turns out and whether we can make the best of it. Indeed, we are seeing, as with the first Obama election, unlike the second one, vast turnout increases among the youth. And that, again, correlates with sentiment, with scandal, with confusion, and with strong passions that are very hard to control and channel in institutional ways, much less could we delude ourselves that our media could do anything to refine and enlarge the public views as political deliberation is supposed to do. Refine and enlarge the public views. Well, that's silly talk. How dare you think about that? <laughs> yes, we, we are in certain ways very far from the standards set by the Federalists and from how the system is supposed to work. And we're paying a very high price for that. So it might persuade at least some people that we need a better understanding and a better practice when it comes to these issues. What does political communication mean in a situation where we have vast democracy at the level of turnout? This is new and it might make for new ideas, at least if people are paying attention and if parties, if politicians, if organizations will see their opportunity there. We have to not delude ourselves about this. Partly it is that turnout is primarily about anger. That's the whole point of voting. You can get angry at people and take it out on them. But it's not only about that, because it also means, as we suggested, different understandings of democracy among our two major coalitions and political ideologies. It means a competition over explaining to the electorate, explaining to America, who are we? What is it that we do hold in common such that we should calm down and get on with it? What is the supermajoritarian consensus we are looking for? And that is something that is increasingly difficult to find, is something in common that on question after question, you ask people in polls and you find that they fundamentally disagree about what it means to be American. Is there such a thing as an American culture? Or is this a country of many cultures? The two party coalitions disagree about that basic question. And when you disagree about a question as basic as that, then it's difficult to see how one agrees on things that are more directly controversial. Yes, indeed. And because it's such a big question, it's not one that can be got at directly in an election. It can't be got at directly in one question of policy. It somehow goes through most questions, if not all, and it changes our politics because more and more issues, like it or not, become infected with what we used to call culture war or what have you. The point of which is always the same question. We're Americans, what does that mean? What do we hold by way of justice? How are we going to treat each other? And this is not going to get settled entirely quietly. It will only be settled by scandal after scandal up until we realize what is so wrong that's obvious that we can say afterwards also what is obviously right counter to that. And so to some extent we have to welcome the democratic furor the vast increase in anger and therefore in the popular act of the will, the vote. 
Therefore, we must also hope that the elections will be properly organized so that these sentiments can be channeled. However shocking in some ways, the sort of future of democracy turnout youth voting is when it looks like it'll be a contest between septuagenarians verging on octogenarian. That's what we have right now. I don't fear the fact of voting as much as I fear the aftermath of an unsuccessful vote or the divisions that we have. You know, periods of high voting can be positive and periods of high passions can be positive. But what we're seeing is a period of passions where the losers don't feel that they can withstand a loss. And if you add to that the sense that the loss was obtained unfairly, then that radicalizes an entire politics and makes any further rational discussion more difficult and intensifies the stakes parties and the coalitions involved think they are experiencing and face. Indeed. Not all the time, not regularly, but often enough, once in a generation, say, we begin to realize again that freedom entails a lot of chaos and confusion. And our freedom is massively confused now. Our passions reflect that. But indeed, they are necessary precisely in order for us to realize what it takes to build a new consensus. No previous consensus in American electoral politics was obtained calmly, quietly and without the drama. But we have done it time and time again for more than 200 years, and so there is very good reason to believe this will happen again. But it will be bought at this price. There has to be crisis, there has to be scandal, there has to be a lot of drama. We have to understand the price we pay for our disagreements or lack of consensus before we learn the value. What it's worth to us to be tranquil, to be confident of something together. We're still at the tantrum stage. And then you have the question of how you come together, is that in American political history, what we have done in the past is come together with one side in a dispute winning unquestionably multiple elections in a row. Consequently, when the Democratic Party under Franklin Roosevelt wins five straight presidential elections and nine of 10 uh, or 10 of 11 congressional elections, then that sets the boundaries for what is acceptable, that to relitigate these questions means to court political defeat. What happens when there is no victory of that sort? or when the victors engage in behavior that doesn't provide legitimate disagreement, that doesn't set boundaries, but rather tries to extirpate debate entirely, then people in other countries have found that democracy no longer works for them because there's no place to live in the new order. And that's something America has not experienced, with the exception of the South and the Civil War. But it is something that we ought to learn from other countries because it is a circumstance that we are fast heading towards. Yes, indeed. American exceptionalism could be phrased as it's the oldest democracy and it's working. It came fairly strong out of a civil war that hasn't repeated. But that does not mean, indeed, that political conflict doesn't take its toll. We are as liable to it as anybody. We just deal with it somewhat differently as we deal with various political issues and even structures of politics, of governance, of elections differently. We have traditions that are fairly strong, but given enough calm, given enough quiet, we inevitably will forget why those traditions are necessary and how they are workable. And then it is in conflict that we learn again how to wield political instruments and hopefully how to wield them for the common good. 
but it is indeed the case that these are contests. There cannot be any coming together but by one majority coalition persuading the nation that this is the way to go. Not indeed forever, not until kingdom come, but at least for a generation or two as has happened in previous times in America. And so that requires both a great raising of stakes, politicians that think to themselves, how do we set the boundaries? How do we set the framework in which we will be thinking, talking, acting for another generation or two? But in another way, it means limiting the stakes because it does mean whoever loses will have to be let to live with it and persuaded that there is living with defeat. And that works two ways. It's something that you need to feel, but it's something that the victors need to permit you. If the victors don't want to let you live, if the price of their victory is not some form of coming together, but rather the establishment of one view over a group that will forever lose, then that creates a situation that requires almost conflict. And that is, again, something that the more we get into the election, the more distrust we have, and the more distrust we have, the less likely it is that somebody eventually is magnanimous when they, as they always will, eventually come out on top. Indeed, this is the difficulty in political conflict. This is why we mostly want tranquility. We mostly want to get along because when we fight, we have to fight hard enough so that there is winner and loser, but also hard enough that the costs of victory teach everybody that there has got to come an end to this kind of conflict, that the nation can go through tantrums and through shocks for a while, but not forever. It has got to be contained at some point, both by the victor's understanding that pushing victory further would be destructive, and of course by the defeated coalition understanding that refusing to accept majority decision would be just as surely, if not more so, destructive. And this requires, as you suggested, about winning consecutive elections. This will require, among other things, a change of generations, a change of habits, a change of public speaking in style and in substance. The issues will change and the way they are addressed up until there is a new way that will significantly make the old way just forgotten. It will have to be left behind precisely so that wounded pride, dark feelings can be left behind as well. This is the end situation we are looking forward to and we have to understand these things about its characters in order to think about how to pursue it. We have to understand what kind of victory, what character does political victory have in America and why is it workable and how should we go about making it workable. Since it's such a rare thing to have an event like the FDR transformation of American politics, we forget and we, we are never that good at it because it's a very rare thing. Nevertheless, we have to get good at it for now. <laughs> yes, every generation has its rendezvous with destiny. And if we do not meet our challenge, then the republic as we know it will fall. There will be something called the United States, but it won't be recognizably American. I would like to believe we can meet that challenge. We have done so largely without conflict for over 200 years, but nothing is written. Indeed, and that seems to be what makes for the nobility of politics. Among all the scandals, among all the chicanery, the partisanship, the underhanded tactics or the demagoguery, we do not know how things turn out and so much is at stake and more and more of us realize how much is at stake and it only is making us angrier. 
It is that difficulty, it is that understanding of urgent crisis that drives us apoplectic, that shows how noble a pursuit politics is, to bring a nation together, to bring people back to tranquility in a decent way where they feel that their dignity has been asserted and will be defended, is no easy task. Oh no, and we have become too used to it being, compared to other countries, relatively easy. And uh, the fact that it is not easy for us right now strikes us as odd, but it's not at all historically inapropos or uh, rare for us to be going through what we are going through. In fact, the American experience is the rare one. Yes, indeed. And so we will have to get more and more clarity about what American political contests look like. What is happening? This is an enormous country. It is incredibly on the move, part by part, in vague, decentralized or networked ways that are hard to get a grasp of. And we're going to need more and more of the kind of work you do, of course, because we have to put numbers to things to try to figure out what the realities are, because nobody can have that much experience. Nobody can comprehend enough of these things all at once. It is not possible to do politics like in a city or a small country where it's so much easier to know so many physically embodied people, places and their relationships. America is just too big for that, so we need a vast level of abstraction of political science and of astute political opinionating. It is absolutely necessary for us to even organize our confusions, much less clarify them. <laughs> organize confusion. Now that sounds like American politics. <laughs> And as we have said, everybody's voting more, but of course, especially the young, because that's where the growth is. They vote least. We needn't get into the whys and wherefores, but it is obvious that politics is primarily a passion of adults. But there is also, of course, a matter of rich and poor. The rich tend to vote more because they feel more ownership of the public things and more of a chance to affect it. They feel that citizenship works better for them and more is at stake for them. But the poor are voting in increasing numbers now too. And a lot of the crisis in our politics is exactly about that. Is citizenship something that can be meaningfully extended to everybody and will politics in a broad sense, not simply by policy, not simply by speeches either or partisan affiliation, but politics in a broad sense, can it guarantee a reasonable chance at dignified happiness for most Americans? Well, in a sense, that has always been in an American debate. Unlike most other countries in the world, we have resolved that that is a question that will be largely decided by us without restrictions to the franchise, that we have had few, if any, property restrictions since the middle or the early part of the 19th century, you know, that Britain didn't allow all men to vote without property qualifications until 1918 and didn't extend it to women until the 1930s. Consequently, giving people that power gives them the opportunity to have voice and to not be ignored uh, in a way that non or less democratic regimes can do so. One of the things we find is that the poor in the United States do not try and confiscate the fortunes of the rich. Redistribution is one thing. Socialism of the style of Venezuela is quite another, and that's not something that the poor in America try and do. And it's also that they're not terribly numerous compared with other countries, that we actually do on a material basis provide at least some stake in society for the vast supermajority of people, even if that stake in their own mind could be improved. 
So I feel relatively comfortable about the types of people and the types of demands that are being put on the political system from an economic perspective. I feel less comfortable about the sort of demands that are being put on a social or moral basis precisely because they seem to be less compromisable and consequently inspire more zeal. Yes, that's a very good point. The class questions in America have to revolve around the center that is large enough and confident enough to hold. Now, poverty is not an urgent problem, but it is related to our urgent problem, which is insecurity. There are many people who have serious insecurities, and partly it's got to do with the fact that the mid-century liberal arrangement the vast institutions of the great society, but also the technological changes and demographic changes of all kinds, increases in population, in different population groups by ethnicity, but also, of course, in uh, lifespans. All of these things are new challenges, and we have not dealt with them very well up till now when they are, in a way, becoming a crisis. How are boomers going to retire and how are millennials going to come into, as it were, inheritance or whatever there will be left? That would be a crass but not misleading, I think, way of looking at this problem. We are supposed to get a grasp this great center, the American middle class way of life and the politics it requires. It comes in varieties by state, more so in varieties by are you in a big city or not? That seems to be the big divide in ways of life and therefore in political opinions in America. We need to begin to get a grasp on these things, and we have done a terrible job of it, so bad that the parties do not represent their electorates. As with increased turnouts, we have this other issue. Our coalitions and our parties are changing, but the electorate is ahead of the politicians. So let's talk about that a little. You have wonderful insights about, especially in the case of the Republican Party, the constituent parts. Who are the groups of voters? How do they understand themselves? What are they looking for? What are they willing to live with? And how might they come to a coalition that gets to majority level? Increasingly, what we're finding in the Western world is politics is being riven by people who feel comfortable in changing modern world and people who do not. And the people who feel comfortable in that world are increasingly banding together into a party that uh, is left-leaning in terms of social and cultural issues, is less nationalist, less moored in traditional religious value, and in some cases hostile to it, somewhere between the center and the center-left in traditional economic sphere. And that means that what you're seeing is people who are well off moving into parties that their parents or even they would never have considered voting for. And the downscale people, particularly the native born in various countries, are finding themselves uneasy in that. Their traditional outlets, their traditional representatives are not supporting them. And they are finding themselves attracted to the right. If Boris Johnson's conservatives win next week, they will win because they will have won places that no conservative has won in 50 to 100 years. Working class constituencies and working class towns that are labeled the Red Wall. That is something that is happening everywhere, and it is something that politicians need to start taking note of, that the old ways cannot hold in light of the large-scale movement of people in a different direction because they no longer feel comfortable in the coalitions in which they grew up. 
Indeed, that's the challenge of our times. We have these shifting coalitions that indeed turn on this question. How do you look to the future, especially in relationship to the government, to politics? Do you think politicians are more or less on your side or at least can't get in your way so that you're fairly confident? Or are you gloomy, not to say on the brink of panic or fury? And this will shape up two different coalitions and is producing politicians out of whole cloth. As in a magic trick, we keep seeing people pop up into national politics that nobody would have expected five or ten years ago, precisely because politicians and parties are unwilling to deal with this change. Of course, all parties want to win or politicians want to win, but they have limits of imagination and, I dare say, principle, since we see that there are so many parties that would rather lose on principle than win by offering the electorate what the electorate wants in each case, in each coalition. Losing on principle, that seems to be um, a very popular thing here in the United States and elsewhere, to be frank. The nice thing about a democracy is over time, popular sentiment really does rule. It can only be suppressed by non-democratic means. So eventually what we will see is political leaders come together to put these forces together into a political coalition that lasts. The only question is, does it happen in a democratic way, or as in countries that can no longer govern themselves, is that coalition put together in some way that is tyrannical, a semi-democratic or non-democratic one-party state? That is an option that people have wandered into when uh, political talent is not present and things are allowed to fester and decline until the abandonment of freedom is something that is seen to be an advantage. And so that, I think, is the challenge that the West must be on guard, that simply because we have managed, depending on our country, between 50 and 200 years to navigate these without falling into the non-democratic or anti-democratic camp does not mean that we are forever blessed with the ability to do so. Indeed, and this is one of the delusions that is now rapidly being dispelled. Yes, we are all Democrats in an essential way. Nobody is advertising tyranny as the way of the future. Nobody is openly for any such thing. And we are so angry and our politics is so royal because we are all equal and therefore we can all get angry and talk about it. But the fact that we are all Democrats in this sense does not mean that democracy as a form of government will work out. Democracy as a form of government is rare and rarely works out. That's another way of stating American exceptionalism. In this case, it worked out. Democracy in Europe, on the other hand, is mostly a creation of American victory in World War II. And that's something that was long forgotten, given the comfort, mental but also political, that American victory created. And that was only exacerbated by the end of the Cold War, where it became fashionable to think that since we are all Democrats in a psychological sense, we all believe in equality, we're also going to be all Democrats in the political sense of competent government. Well, that's not so. They're not the same thing. As you said, politics requires a lot of art, it requires a lot of talent, it requires science, and it requires great public spiritedness and organization, to say nothing about quite a lot of luck, too. So we're going to have to learn the hard way, whether we have the talent and whether we can organize it in time. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I would like to be an optimist, but the only way to be a rational optimist is to indulge in some degree of pessimism. Indeed, we have to worry about what might go wrong given the evidence we have in front of us and therefore to try to understand specifically, as definitely as possible, what would victory look like 
how do we get back to a good way of life that we can be fairly proud of and fairly reliant on. And if we do not do that, we will not even know how to get there or whether what we are doing or what is happening to us is a change for the better or for the worse. We will not be able to understand events. We should, of course, after the British elections talk about the UK specifically and perhaps another time also just about the shocking changes with electoral politics. The English have had four major political contests and still have no idea what it is that they want. And the Spanish are in the exact same situation. And so is Israel incapable of finding a coalition. And there are all sorts of examples like this that will make us ask again, yes, we are all Democrats, but can we make democracy work? It's apparently very, very hard to form a government in countries that would really need one. (laughs) So we will have to talk about these things. But for now, for our closing segment, how about we talk about the elements of the Republican coalition, how they have shifted in 2018 and we think they will shift in 2020? Well, the Republicans have been moving to a more socioeconomically downscale coalition over the last four years. They've been losing educated, moderate people of middle class and upper middle class incomes. And they have been gaining people without college degrees, people with slightly above to somewhat below the median income. They're not all poor or working class, but they're definitely not well off. And what that has done is it's made it almost impossible for the Republicans to win the House, but it has made it possible for President Trump to win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And it has made the Republican strength in the Senate more impregnable because the sorts of places that are underpopulated and uh, overrepresented in the Senate are the sorts of places with these new Republicans who used to be open to voting for Democrats. For the Republicans to move forward, they need to keep the new coalition and try and attract back two groups of voters. They need to try and decrease the defections among suburbanites. They can't expect to get all of them back, but they need to get some of them back. And they need to increase their support among working class and middle class immigrants. And there's no reason that they can't do that, but it's going to be an unwieldy coalition because these groups necessarily want different things. But it's going to be easier for Republicans to put that coalition than for the Democrats to put together their coalition because the Democratic groups that are rather intransigent are a larger group that has felt more suppressed and out of power. And so consequently, they will likely demand more and compromise less. Indeed, both coalitions have to figure out gradually what it is they can work together on and how they're going to go about doing it. In the case of Republicans, it is an astonishing thing, but one that does seem to have similar examples as evidence in other democracies. To put it crassly, but not, I think, misleadingly, Republicans are now the party of the poor half of America, not the rich half of America which would have been incomprehensible if you studied, say, the rhetoric of Mitt Romney or Paul Ryan. And that was 2012, not ancient history. Now it is indeed a matter of looking not to lose the older coalition, higher educated suburbanites. So not to lose the Romney to Hillary voters, but not to lose the Obama to Trump voters. And then there is this other third group, as you mentioned, Republicans need to make certain inroads with immigrants and on certain social and economic issues. This would be possible precisely because of the party shifting towards the poorer rather than the richer half of America and therefore being more aware of this possibility of being culturally conservative to an extent 
that doesn't mean being all about Christianity or all about being religious, but being culturally conservative in a broad sense that can appeal to many different groups, not just the churchgoers. And on the other hand, being far more serious on the economy when it comes to how are people even going to believe they can act for their own betterment, that they can get ahead to the point where they will feel less insecure, they will feel a bit confident in the future. What is it that politics must do at its various levels in America to persuade these people to vote, to create a new coalition despite their disparate interests? and on a reasonable schedule, actually deliver successes that people can build confidence on. Yeah, it's going to be enormous challenges for right, particularly the United States right, that has tended to be very much opposed to the idea of a strong federal government. People in the United States now want a relatively strong federal government. They may differ about what they want it to be used for, but there is a coalition that wants a relatively strong federal government, and the Republican Party needs to be responsive to that, or else it cannot put that coalition together. Indeed, and there is no coalition now or in the foreseeable future for Uh, I don't know, promising to repeal the New Deal or the Great Society, promising to repeal all the federal government that so many people rely on. The fact that the government isn't working isn't persuading people to chuck it, but it is making so many people anxious, insecure, worried about whether they can put their hopes in sufficient improvement for themselves and the next generation in foreseeable time, in the near future something that is reasonably solid and people will be able to test out so that win, lose or draw, you don't go crazy with confusion. You at least know, are you getting what you wanted or do you want to change your vote? That requires both the great ambition of putting so many disparate groups together to understand what do these people all have in common? How could they understand themselves in a confident and active way as Americans thinking that they together and of course individually can do well enough? not fantastically well, but well enough. And on the other hand, it requires far less ideology and far less of the attitude of losing on principle, since the political stakes are so high. Indeed, public sentiment counts. You can persuade people to change their opinion to an extent in limited ways, but you cannot transform what opinions people have about jobs and families, what opinions they have about security, what opinions they have about what a community should look like, what a city should be run like, what services government is supposed to deliver. To a large extent, these things are set. They can be arranged a little, changed a little, but not fundamentally. Certainly not in the short run, and that's something that the right needs to understand, is that persuasion of a large scale either requires force, crisis, or a long-run movement. The idea that it can be accomplished quickly and overnight is simply fanciful. Indeed. I think we're pretty to close, and Henry, you have put this thought in my mind that we are looking for long-term change because these are times of confusion, and one thing we are seeing more and more is people don't believe things are going the right direction. People don't believe that a generation from now things will be hunky-dory, much less progress or paradise or the end of history. People don't even know what the hell to fear. So we need to think long term. But at the same time, as you say, this is part of persuading the public. Public sentiment can change very significantly, but only over the long term. 
Yes. Creating a new coalition that feels in the short term fairly secure and effective is tied with orienting that coalition towards a vision of America, of what justice will deliver to actual human beings now and in the future that can rally more and more people behind it as it unfolds and it proves to people that it's reasonably successful. It requires uh, what is called prudence. Yes, indeed. And as always, if prudence becomes a problem, we're in deep, deep trouble. But at least we know it. We have to talk about this and try to understand specifically the character of our problems and the character of the solutions we're looking for and see how to get from here to there. So we should do more of these talks about elections. I'm looking forward to your writing on the UK elections coming up December 12, which I believe you will be covering from London. Yes, I leave um, Thursday, December 5th, and I will be writing every day for um, the, the UK elections for about a week and a half. Perfect. Then somewhere at the end of that, when you will have crystallized your thoughts and we will have seen how events turn out, it would be a pleasure to do this again and get something of a foretaste of what is happening in our world with so many countries being roiled by elections that do not seem decisive or coherent. I would be delighted to join you. Thanks a lot for your time. Good luck in your English journey and all the best meanwhile. Thank you and the same to you. Thank you.